Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Lin. Hello, and welcome to Lung Cancer Considered. This is Dr. Stephen Liu, Director of Thoracic Oncology at Georgetown University. Today, we'll discuss the management of lung cancer in South Africa, learning about the current care model, and any unique challenges facing patients and clinicians. I'm joined today by Dr. Ronwin Van Yaden, a medical oncologist practicing in Rosebank, South Africa. Dr. Van Yaden has just started her own oncology unit and is also an honorary consultant in medical oncology at the Chris Hani Benagwanath Academic Hospital. Ronwin, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much, Stephen, for having me. Ronwin, could you start by describing the healthcare system in South Africa and access to healthcare? Is this a public or a private system? So the healthcare system in South Africa is a very difficult one. It's basically divided into two main sectors. So that would be the private sector and the public sector. The difficulty about these sectors in South Africa is that the public sector serves the vast majority of the population in South Africa. So we're talking about 85% of the population will seek healthcare from the public sector. Um, About 15, 16% of patients use private healthcare. So that's really the minority of patients in South Africa. However, the public sector is the one that is significantly lacking in terms of types of therapies. We have access to new therapies, innovative medicines, such as immunotherapy and targeted therapies. And really in the public sector, it's just basics. It's just basic chemotherapy, whatever's available we use. We don't really have access to fancy protocols and and those kind of things. And then in the private sector, the small percentage of patients that have access to private healthcare, it also differs quite vastly the type of private healthcare that you have access to. So what we term medical aids, um, generally the patients pay a monthly fee to the medical aid, um, but also depending on your contribution to the medical aid is what you'll you'll get back from the medical aid. So there's um, different levels of plans or tiers, or we refer to it as a tier system. So it's tier one, tier two, tier three. And whereas the majority of that 16% will be on tier one or the basic, what we call a PMB benefits or prescribed minimum benefits where you can almost get equivalent to what's available in state. And then really only about 2% of the population can afford a tier three, like a really, really great medical aid where you get access to all sorts of different types of new therapies, innovative care. And even with those top, top medical aids, we struggle to get authorizations and access to to newer drugs and often with still a cost to the patient where they have co-payments and, you know, further monetary contributions that they have to give to their treatment. And so, yeah, that's the great struggle here in South Africa. That sounds like a real challenge for the patients, for the physicians, really sort of navigating that field that's quite difficult just to get a better sense of, of how these are approached. When we think of lung cancer specifically, Is this a centralized system? Are patients with lung cancer generally referred to tertiary care centers or are most patients treated locally? So um, in South Africa, it works a bit differently from how it does in America or Europe, for instance, whereas, you know, obviously we've 
traveled and we do preceptorships in different countries and we get to experience what oncology is like in, in other parts of the world. What I found is when I do these preceptorships and when I visit other centers in America or also in Europe, what I found is that there they have specialized centers which focus on a specific disease entity. So you'll have all the patients going to either like a sarcoma center or a lung cancer or a melanoma center. In South Africa, it's oncologists, you kind of jack of all trades. So we don't have the means and we don't have the capability and also just the enough people or enough resources for us to have um, specialized units such as that. So basically, we all treat everything. And as a patient, you don't get referred to like a specific unit or a specific area that specializes in your type of cancer. For most, if you're in public, you get sent to the oncology unit that services that area. Or alternatively, you, if you're in the private setting, you get referred by your GP or your specialist to an oncologist that they know or an oncologist that you live close by to, basically. It puts a lot of onus on the oncologist to be very up to date with all cancers. That's with everything, yes. <laughs> Which is always hard because like there's literally, I always say with oncology, there's something new every day. And I think also the other difficult thing is that in the public sector, like in Johannesburg, where I live, the main referring oncology unit was actually only at one hospital. So that would be the Charlotte Matekia Academic Hospital, Parktown. And the unit that's at Chris Hani Baragwanath is basically brand new as well. And it was actually like sponsored as well. So it's called the Soweto Comprehensive Cancer Center. And that only really came to be, we had the launch early this year. So before then, all the patients in Johannesburg and the referring areas around Johannesburg were getting treatment at only one place. And now with the new oncology unit being at Barrow, they have a little bit more, the patients, especially in, in Soweto and the further areas away, have a bit more access to oncology care that's close to where they live as well. Is there a general shortage of medical oncologists right now in South Africa? So I think there's always shortage of oncologists. We practice basically also just to explain about how medical oncology works. Basically in Johannesburg, that's where we really see uh, medical oncology as a speciality. So what happens is that a medical oncologist, they would do an internal medicine degree first, and then they would specialize in medical oncology. And then we've got a separate specialization for radiation oncologist. And that's generally in Johannesburg what happens. So for medical oncologists, it's very concentrated to just Johannesburg and there's very few of us, so say maybe 40 to 60 at most. And then in other parts of the country, they do a training that's called kind of a clinical oncology. So it's like a radiation oncology degree, but also giving chemotherapy as well. So there's a great divide also from what happens in different, we've got nine different provinces in South Africa. And there's a great divide in also what happens from one province to the next. So in your big provinces like Cape Town and uh, Hating, so Western Cape mainly, you'd find that that's quite saturated with lots of oncologists. And in Cape Town, it's more clinical oncologists. And in, in Johannesburg, like a few medical oncologists and radiation oncologists. So it's a very different type of setup from the rest of the world. Sure is. I'd love to hear a little bit more about the patients that you're treating as well. Just from a demographic standpoint, South Africa is a very diverse, multicultural yes. country. Does that diversity create any barriers to care? 
So definitely, I mean, South Africa, we call it the rainbow nation, and there are many, many different types of racial groups. And then also besides for racial groups, cultural groups as well. So, I mean, as doctors, you've got to be really astute and you've got to be kind of tolerant or aware of the different cultural differences when you're treating patients, because that impacts what you give them, what they'll be open to receiving what kind of interactions you have with them. So it does make it extremely difficult. And in public, generally, you have patients that also come from poorer socioeconomic statuses. So they come from rural areas, they come from a lot of poorer areas in the country. So that's generally a patient that doesn't have a lot of insight or a lot of opportunity to get access to education about their cancer and their disease. Whereas if you go into a very affluent area in South Africa, you've got then the complete opposite where you've got a very educated and a very informed and entitled patient almost if I can put it that way. So yeah, it creates a lot of difficulty in how you approach treatments. You have to be very open to to changing and be flexible in the way that you speak to patients, the way that you choose their therapies, those kind of things. So um, it's just really, really broad and diverse in, in what we encounter every day. And what about language? Is language ever a barrier in South Africa? Absolutely. I actually saw a patient in the clinic at Barra this week, and she, it was a new patient, and she didn't speak any English at all. And I unfortunately speak English and Afrikaans, and I know a couple of Zulu words here and there, but not enough to have a conversation with anyone. And there's 11 official languages in the country, and this patient didn't speak, and we didn't speak anything that we could understand. So you have to sometimes do that whole consultation via an interpreter. So basically we sat together with a nurse who sits with me the whole time and goes through the conversations. And that's very hard because you can almost feel how things get lost in translation and what you're trying to convey and the understanding that you're trying to see if get from the patient. So I don't really, that consult is, or those type of consults are difficult because you don't really understand if the patient is comprehending what you're getting across. And for instance, that patient was a metastatic patient and, you know, and I was trying to convey that the cancer is not curative and those kind of conversations are very delicate. They're sensitive conversations. And also at a clinic like Barra, it is packed. It's busy. It's like we understaffed. There's a lot of patients. So you've got a time pressure on you as well to kind of get through all the work. And doing that via translator is also just exceptionally hard. Yeah, Raman, I can't imagine. That sounds incredibly challenging. I had no idea. 11 official languages. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and yeah, and I think as doctors, we don't, we all speak like one or two, you know, and also in different parts of the country, different languages are prevalent and those kind of things. But you know, it's very, I think it was different as when you were training as a doctor or a young doctor, you had to have simple conversations with patients, just like kind of give them antibiotics or, you know, tell them that they have flu or cold or they need fluids. And now it just, it gets a lot more intricate because, you know, our conversations with patients with someone who has cancers, like it goes a lot further and a lot deeper than that. And it's just, yeah, the, it's difficulty, like the difficulty in getting those understanding between you and the patients is really, really hard. The other thing I just want to mention as well is that at the public hospital, like whereas in private, it's my clinic and all the patients are mine and they see me each time they come. And so they've got kind of continuity in care because it's all in the same person going through the disease process. And public art works, me as a consultant will 
or one of the other consultants will see a patient for the first time. And basically what we'll do is we'll consult with the patient, look through their diagnosis, make a treatment plan for them. And basically the next time that patient gets back to the clinic, they'll see maybe be seen by a medical officer or a registrar that's working in the clinic. So your notes have to be really great so that whoever comes and sees that patient after you kind of knows what's going on. And what happens is that really in public sector, you see that patient the first time and after that, the registrars or the medical officers see them and you just signing scripts for the next chemo, checking that everything is done correctly. And it's very, very difficult. And you worry about the patients because you, for instance, if you're getting near adjuvant treatment or something like that, and you're trying to see response, it's a different person seeing that patient each time. Also in public, the huge challenge is just getting access to radiology. So we don't like have, well, at Chris Harney, for instance, we don't have a dedicated radiology or CT scan list. So say, for instance, if you started a lung cancer patient on neoadjuvant therapy or any patient or breast cancer, and you're trying to like kind of assess response to disease, sometimes you're just treating blindly because the patients don't always come with proper staging. They get basic staging And this is really sad, like they'll get a chest X-ray and an abdominal ultrasound only. And you're kind of just hoping that that's enough to say that they weren't metastatic to start with. And to get that patient to get an initial scan is already difficult. So you can just imagine, like if you're trying to halfway through treatment, you know, get an interval scan to see if they're responding to anything like that is just impossible at times. So it's a constant struggle just to even get the basic initial treatment and initial staging done in a correct way. So sometimes you're starting off on a back foot already, but you know the process is so hard just to get those patients to the oncology clinic that you kind of don't want to delay them any further or delay the treatment any further by saying, okay, I want to wait first to get a scan. Like that can take months sometimes or like weeks. So often you just start treatment and you know you hope for a scan later on and or whenever you can get it. So yeah, like I must say, the divide between private and public is huge. Whereas in private, if I want to scan today, I can pick up to my radiologist. I need an urgent MRI. Or I need a, I need the scan this week, or and can get done. So what I can do in private is like basically first world, and what I do in public is the exact opposite. It's just the divide and the inequality is just it's immense. Yeah, I don't think I appreciated how how huge the disparities were there. And in the public setting, it must be so challenging for the patients not to be able to really establish a rapport for, for a doctor because it sounds like there's not one person they identify necessarily as their own doctor. No, not at all. So when we were training as fellows, basically you'd get a patient and stick with that patient. But what happens is when your training is done, you leave the hospital and that patient goes into what we call the ridge pile, which is where all the training doctors or the registrars like then do the follow-ups and see those patients. And, you know, I've spoken to patients, it's frustrating for them because each time they see a new doctor, it's like that doctor has to first read the whole file, see what's happening. And then it's usually a junior doctor. And then that doctor, junior doctor has to come to one of us as consultants, discuss the case. And then we give advice and it's usually advice on other people's patients or patients you've never seen before. So It's really just patients get this, it's almost fragmented care. I mean, they all do get care, so don't get me wrong. They all get seen, they get their treatment, they get their follow-ups. But I think from a patient perspective, it's immensely hard because they have to, each time they come to a clinic, 
try to explain the situation to a different person. I mean, this week I saw a patient and I kind of understood what he wanted. And he was just like, oh, thank goodness. Like, you know, one person like got what I wanted quickly. And I could see his frustration and his relief just that, you know, he didn't have to. Yeah, it's a difficult situation, more so even for the patients. Navigating lung cancer is extremely difficult under the best of circumstances. And I, I can't imagine with all these extra barriers and challenges it must be very difficult. Can yeah. you talk a little bit about the sort of the stigma associated with lung cancer in South Africa? Is that something you're aware of? Yeah, so definitely. I think, um, you know, we refer back to the cultural and the racial differences in our country. So, you know, particularly, in, and I see this in public and in private as well, particularly with uh Black patients, it's kind of not spoken of that you have cancer. Cancer is not something that's like accepted with patients. And you kind of, if you have cancer, you don't mention it. You don't talk about it. It's not a thing. You kind of get uh, ostracized for even having it. So, and generally also the black patients, the younger generation, I would say, especially find it frustrating. Um, One of the questions I had in my private practice this week was like, okay, so what do I go home and tell my parents? They're going to tell me I'm crazy to you know, want to do chemotherapy or other therapies. And it's still looked at as um, kind of Western medicine and experimenting on patients and things like that. And in cultural differences, you have things what are referred to as sangomas or witch doctors. And basically they still have a big influence in certain cultures that uh, to treat people like from that point of view or like with natural medications or person to describe all of that but yeah so so it's difficult because our young generation want to do what's kind of up to date what's new what's western and you know going back in to the communities and where they come from that's not really recognized as something that you do and really thought of that Ronald. this is really really eye-opening to me and i think of south africa as an industrial and technologically advanced country with this highly developed economy but there are very well-described socioeconomic inequalities, which I think you're alluding to, and very low rates of intergenerational mobility. And I hadn't really considered this sort of lack of acceptance of Western medicine overall. Is that something that you see along that divide? So yeah, we see it. I think it's getting better now. I think people are obviously getting more access and more educated and you know, there's more information out there. But yeah, I think it's the disparity between, you know, the socioeconomic statuses in South Africa is just very broad. So like you just get like really extreme situations where you've got patients that are in private that are like really, really can fly to other countries. I've got patients that fly to Israel for medicine or for trials or, or those kind of things. And then you've got the opposite end of the spectrum as well. Ronald, let's talk a little bit about patient management. How are most patients with lung cancer diagnosed in South Africa? So the biopsies of lung cancer also varies quite differently according to public and private. Public, it's very difficult for lung cancer for us to get biopsies and to get cardiothoracic intervention if we need it. There's also at the hospitals, like only certain hospitals have cardiothoracic as a speciality. So we'd have to refer to a bigger hospital. And also in terms of interventional radiology in public sector, we don't really have that. So, yeah, it's a struggle to get biopsies done. Like I say, like in the beginning, it's just hard to kind of, quite a delay in diagnosing cancer. In the private, 
got um, interventional radiologists that are exceptionally skilled at doing CT guided or sonar guided biopsy. You've got cardiothoracic surgeons who can do it, mediastinoscopies, bronchoscopies, whatever you need. The problem with lung cancer diagnosis is that, and I'm saying this respectfully, is that we don't, what we see is that uh, certain specialists don't always know what we need as oncologists to adequately treat a patient. So, for instance, last week I got a patient referred with an FNA of a lung mass, which is um, for us when we want to do next generation sequencing, molecular testing, PDL1 testing is really just a nightmare because when that patient gets to you, they're quite distraught already with their diagnosis. And then you've got to get a new biopsy for the patient so that you can get tissue to adequately test all the things you need. And then other things also I've seen is that the patient will get initially seen by a physician in the hospital with the lung mass and they'll be sent directly to a cardiothoracic surgeon. I've had a patient that had an open lung biopsy and kind of just a piece of the tumor hacked out of the chest. And when they got to me, they didn't have any staging done. So they were actually metastatic. So there there was probably a less invasive way that you could have biopsied that patient. So I think the main thing that we're lacking out there is education and what's the proper way to approach what the diagnostic approach is to a patient. So there's a lot of frustrations for me because either I'll get incorrect methods of diagnosis or I get inadequate tissue. Um, you know, so it's it's super frustrating. And I'm very fortunate that uh, my referral base and the team I work for kind of understand that. So we would usually discuss the patient in a multidisciplinary team first, speak about what's the best way to approach the OPSI, what's the least invasive way for the patient to get the most tissue, those kind of things. But I mean, obviously we get referrals from everywhere. So sometimes what you see is um, even cringeworthy, if I can put it that way, like where you would look back retrospectively and wish things would get done in a different way. So it's, yeah, it's really all over the place. You get like a mix and match of different things and kind of when the patient gets to you, a lot of the times you start from scratch. I mean, also in terms of referral, sometimes I just get a chest X-ray from a, a general practitioner and it's kind of like this patient has a lung mass or you work it up and then you kind of start from scratch as well. But sometimes I prefer that because then you can kind of do the approach in the correct way and make sure that the patient gets worked up diagnostically correctly. Yeah. I, I guess we have to think of resources in a couple different ways. You know, when we think of earlier stage lung cancer, you know, in textbooks, we'll talk about endobronchial ultrasound, robotic yes. minimally invasive surgery. You know, these require not only the highly specialized equipment, which is very expensive, but also the specific training of the Correct. physicians. And so are those available to most patients in South Africa? Yeah, so I would say in the private setting, yes, there are lots of cardiothoracic surgeons that are very skilled and very equipped to do those things. You know, it's just a matter of getting the patients referred to the correct person and in the right way. So, but yeah, and then the other thing also is that requires training is also pathologists in South Africa as well. So once we get tissue and once we get a diagnosis, so in, in the public setting, once we get tissue there, I mean, basically, you just get a diagnosis of what the lung cancer is, whether it's an adeno or a squam, and, and that's where it ends. And we don't even embark on any further testing or anything like that in public in the public setting because 
there's no drugs, there's no access to immunotherapy really unless it's via clinical trial or targeted therapy. So we don't even bother doing that in public. And then obviously in private, you need a pathologist that know how to interpret a PDL one which is the correct assay to use for, for which drug you want to use, those kind of things. So also there's a lack of that and there's only like really certain pathologists that know how to do that properly. So myself as an oncologist and in private, when I need that testing done, there's like a specific person I go to who I know is, is capable and able to do that. I think the, the companies did kind of try to like roll out trainings when they've got new drugs and they've got new assays and those kind of things to make sure that all the labs equipped to do it. You also need a, a lab that's accredited to do certain things. So yeah, so you really have to be careful who's doing your your pathology and who's that they're doing it in the correct way as well. well did I hear correctly in that for at least the patients in the public sector, that targeted therapies simply aren't available? We don't have anything. We've got chemo and that's it. So there's no targeted therapies at all. There's no immunotherapy at all. So we don't even do molecular testing or PDL one or anything like that, because it's a waste of money and a waste of resources to do those testing if you don't have an, like a drug to give or, an, or a product to give. So like, what's the point of even testing it in the first place? And remember, I was like, that's 85% of the population. So, yeah. Wow. That is really eye, eye-opening to me. Are, are clinical trials available for most of your patients? So yeah, definitely we do have access to clinical trials. Also, the other thing there is to get education out about the trials and to get create awareness about the clinical trials. So I mean, in Johannesburg alone, where I work in the private setting, there's like four different trial sites in a 20 kilometer radius of me. So basically what we do is that we get lists from each other about what trials are available at each of our units. And then based on that, you try and refer. So in the public setting, there is a clinical trial unit as well that we also have available to patients. And it's also what we do is we educate the doctors to try and highlight the patients that will be eligible or fit criteria for certain trials. I think in private, it's also difficult because in private practice, it's competitive. You have oncologists who have practices and they they need to make money. So when you send your patient to another site for a clinical trial, that's the, a patient you lose. So it's very hard to like also create awareness that when you send a patient for trial, it's for the patient's best interest and for them to get access to the most innovative and newest therapies that are available. So some people or some doctors also are not keen to do that because they lose the patient or they don't get to treat the patient themselves. Um, so there's a lot of politics, a lot of dynamics that are involved in that. But yes, there is definitely a lot of access and a lot of availability. In terms of lung cancer trials, we have a lot in terms of immunotherapy trials, also some targeted therapy trials like Flora 2 with osimertinib. So we're always trying to get patients on that because, you know, the drugs in South Africa are extremely, extremely expensive. So to get osimertinib first line, therapy for an EGFR positive lung cancer is essentially like the biggest drug ever have. So if you can get a patient on a trial for that, to get that for them first line, it would be the best bet. So yeah, frustrating. <laughs> yeah. I had no idea about the degree of the, the disparities. That's really eye-opening. When we think of, you know, obviously access is, is challenging for these agents, but from an availability standpoint, 
Can you talk about the regulatory process of drugs in South Africa you know, relative to the U.S. FDA? Yeah, so like my line about what drugs we have access to is literally I always feel like we're five years behind everybody else. I feel like by the time the rest of the world has been treating lung cancer with a certain drug, it's by the time we get it, it's really like old news already. And then, for instance, like we'll get a, an old drug. So uh, to give you an example, I'm going to use ALK positive lung cancer. So for the longest time, we had no treatments for ALK. And then maybe about two years ago, we got crizotinib, and that was our only therapy we had, and it's our first-line therapy. And we know in the rest of the world, that's really like your last resort, basically. And then the crizotinib also is exceptionally expensive. So what I'm talking about is, and I'm not sure what the conversion is to US dollars, but 80,000 rand a month. I mean, that's only available on your top tier or your top level medical aid. And then once you get that approved, there'll be a co-payment for the patient as well. And then for other drugs that we have, only recently we've had brigatinib registered. And so those are two drugs for L-positive lung cancer. Brigatinib also only registered in the second line setting after you failed crizotinib. So literally like that's all we have. And the price of those drugs are really just not affordable and they're only available to really, really like patients that have money and have access and those kind of things. I mean, that's not such a big deal because obviously it's not a common thing you see and ALK positive lung cancer is not an everyday thing. But if you do come across a patient who does have an ALK positive cancer, like it's really, it's really a challenge to get drugs. In terms of other targeted agents, we have EGFR, osimertinib is available. It was only available in second line for the longest time. And now it's available first line, also in the same price range as crizotinib, so very difficult to get it approved. And then we have allotinib, which is a lot cheaper for us because there's a lot of generics or biosimilars available. And I think only now, I think in the next couple of months, we'll get jafitinib as well. So yeah, it's. I think what's shocking sometimes is in the rest of the world is like, these are just normal mutations, normal drugs you get. And we are still like kind of like three, four years back, we're still trying to struggle just to get a lot of for some patients on certain medical aids. And we don't even have it in, in public at all, you know, even though it's a lot cheaper now. So it's, I think the message I want to get across is that, yes, like we know about it and yes, um, certain things are available, but like to get these targeted therapies to patients is really, it's really frustrating and it's difficult at times. Yeah. Wow. Did I hear correctly? Did you say 80,000 South African rand? Yeah. Yeah. 80, like around there. And that's so similar pricing for immunotherapy procession as well. So the, for the US dollars, that's about that's a little over $5,000 a month um, Yeah, for, for a pretty old drug. For an old drug. Yeah. And the thing is also that's super frustrating is that in like, this is me speaking from an oncologist that kind of like I do lung cancer and uh, we look for mutations and we look for NGS, you know. We also like these certain parts of South Africa where lung cancer, we will find that patients with an adenocarcinoma get testing for, don't even get a mutational analysis or people aren't even looking for targets for therapy because they kind of just, it's easy just to give chemotherapy or they don't know about it or all those kind of things. So also like the disparity in the knowledge, I think, from oncologists in different parts of the areas is, is also quite huge. And so, you know, the drug companies have like do quite a lot of like education, a lot of talks, a lot of product launches, those kind of things. 
But I mean, I sit on panels. We are review also like for medical aids and for when expensive drugs come in. And you'll some surprised at how a lot of oncologists are not asking for even looking for mutations and they're kind of just treating with chemo and doing like very basic things still. So, yeah, and it also I think depends on what part of the country you, you practice in. So if you know it's like a part of the country where a lot of people are don't have great medical aids, like I also feel probably a lot of oncologists will just not even look for it because they know it's going to just be a huge struggle to get the drug anyway. You know, when I look back over the past few years, I think that we've come a long way in terms of global collaboration, in terms of, of awareness and communication in the digital era. But have we done a good job connecting with South Africa? Do you feel like you know South Africa is connected to a network of oncology colleagues? So no, I don't think that we have good availability and good access to collaborations in the rest of the world. I think in terms of new drugs and access to new therapies and those kind of things are only really via clinical trials if we're lucky enough to get that specific trial in the country. I feel like there's not a lot of access in terms of people to be able to ask for guidance and help with difficult cases or or newer therapies or newer drugs that we haven't had the opportunity to use here before. So I think that we are a bit behind on a scale of collaboration and and doing those kind of things, there's just not enough information or access out there. So yeah, it kind of just feels like yeah, you're on the tip of on the tip of the world on your own. So yeah, I don't really think there's much much in terms of that. That's something we we definitely have to do better with Ron. When you can call me anytime. Um, but <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> I know it's been it's been even more challenging. I'd imagine over the past couple of years due to the the COVID nineteen pandemic. I know that's you know, in all of our countries and all of our homes, it's dramatically altered our way of life, lung cancer care in particular, but we know the impact has been particularly high in South Africa. Can you speak to a little bit about how the pandemic's affected healthcare there? So I think definitely what the pandemic has done is that it's significantly decreased the amount of patients seeking medical attention and seeking care for conditions that have been going on for a long time. So definitely what we're seeing now that the pandemic's kind of died down is a lot later presentations of cancer, patients that basically have had symptoms or have had things going on for a long time before they've seeked help for them. The standard answer is is really that being afraid to go to the doctor, they've been afraid of getting COVID. So yeah, you're just seeing very late presentations. I mean, I, I do breast cancer as well. I'm seeing bigger breast masses. Um, because patients kind of didn't want to go for a mammogram because they were scared to go to a hospital or something like that. Um, Also in terms of um, just hospital admissions, you know, I must say cancer patients because they are inherently worried about being immunosuppressed and being at higher risk of um, getting a more severe COVID or dying from COVID, kind of just stay away from the hospital or from us altogether. So I saw a significant decrease in the number of patients that came for help, like say, for instance, if they had a side effect or they had progression of the cancer with symptoms that were worsening, they just didn't want to be admitted to hospital at all because they were scared that they'd go in and and die from COVID basically. So um, they just basically were refusing treatment. Yeah, so it's been difficult. And what's hard now is with the pandemic dying down, suddenly you just have your patients like crawling out from the cracks everywhere and suddenly remembering that they need to do their follow-ups and their checkups. So 
and then you just suddenly super busy and you can't kind of cope with all the checkups and the follow-ups and and you haven't seen patients for like a year and a half, two years. And yeah, so it's really, and then also just in terms of cancer care and stuff, like the hospitals have been focusing so much on the COVID pandemic and resourcing the COVID wards, uh, PPE, ventilators, oxygen. So there just hasn't been much progress or investment into the cancer side of things. So that's just also been completely neglected in a way. So yeah, definitely I've noticed an impact and yeah, but I think going forward, I hope, you know, patients will understand that like, I think COVID's becoming something we have to live with and that they'll, they still need to care for themselves. And from a cancer point of view, um, seek care and follow-ups and, and those kind of things. Well, this is um, it's really eye-opening to me, and I, I feel like I talk forever, but uh, it also sounds like you're probably the busiest person I've ever met. So uh, <laughs> I, I want to be conscious of time, but maybe before we close, I think our listeners would love to hear just a little more about you know your own career path, uh, maybe a little bit about your training and why you sort of chose oncology, lung cancer. Maybe you could shed a little light on that. I always laugh and say, I didn't choose oncology, it chose me. I remember as a <laughs> as a registrar training, uh, and no one, none of us ever wanted to do oncology as our, our rotation. We all avoided it like the plague um, because it was always the saddest and the hardest. And But I landed up doing an oncology rotation during my reg time for medicine, and I really enjoyed it. And I think what was great for me was basically the innovation in medicine, that there was always new and there was always something to kind of look forward to, like there'd be a new drug and a new path or a new, a different approach to things or a different approach to care for patients. And also I think in terms of oncology, your patients become your family. You walk this incredibly um, long journey with them and you just kind of focus on helping them and getting them through things even more so than just giving them the most precision medicine or most innovative therapy. So I think that really spoke to me as a younger doctor that you could form these bonds and and kind of walk these paths with the patients. In South Africa, it's very hard to focus on one specific cancer because, like I said in the very beginning, we kind of have to like treat everything and see everything. But I, I just find uh, lung cancer very interesting, and I find it um, like the most changing and evolving field in cancers. While there's always just something new. What I'd like to focus on going forward is kind of, especially now that I've got more access to the public setting, is kind of um, working on projects that kind of give us more information about the demographics and the different cultures and races in South Africa. Maybe do kind of investigate initiated research projects where we can look at the genomics of specifically black patients in South Africa, what type of disease they have, what kind of mutations they have, do they have the propensity to have more aggressive disease and why is that? And, you know, just there's no information about patients in South Africa. You've got so much about ancestral history of of different uh, populations in Europe and all over the world. And whereas in South Africa, we don't really know anything about us patients specifically. We kind of extrapolate data and, you know, resources and things that have been done on and research that's been done on patients in, in other parts of the world. So, I would really, really love to do that as a focus. We're also looking to start up a trial unit at Chris Honey Baragonath, kind of just get more patients access to research and newer therapies and kind of collaborate with the drug companies and also just to try and get more access and availability to drugs and 
yeah, and newer therapies for patients. So that's kind of my passion. And yes, it's busy because I also do love my private practice. Um, it's um, I've got a lot of patients that I care for there, so it's very hard to kind of just like spread your time all of all across all these things that you want to do because you've got kind of so many ideas and so many thoughts and yeah, and only so many hours in the day. So that's me. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, we definitely have to think of a, a way that ISLC and, and the community can can come to, to help here. But thank you for bringing awareness to a lot of the major issues there. I know you're very busy. Thank you for being so generous with your time and for taking the time to to inform us and our listeners today. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And yeah, and I think always just talking about things and talking about what goes on in the rest of the world. I mean, yeah, exactly like you say, creating awareness. I think we always hope that it will just allow our patients, especially those in really resource-limited settings to just maybe in a way get a little bit more access to more things and more therapies and get a a better level of care than just uh, basically what we have now. Well said. Uh, Thanks to everyone for listening to Lung Cancer Considered, the official ISLC podcast. We hope that you'll tune in regularly to give us a listen. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, www.iaslc.org, in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 